Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So we're in week three of our series, How Happiness Happens, where we've been taking a look at some of the key ingredients for cultivating joy in the middle of a broken world. We've talked about faith and generosity. And this morning, I want to look at something that I think is one of the most significant factors for making happiness happen in our lives, community. Healthy relationships matter. Here's the deal. We will never be all we were made to be all by ourselves. And we will never connect to the joy we were built for without connecting to community. But that's easier said than done because communities are made up of people and people are the worst. I don't know if any of you relate to that, but I'm willing to bet that at least one or two of us in here this morning found ourselves frustrated by annoyed with or angry at a family member this week. Maybe even picked a fight with that person. There's nothing that's ever happened at my house. I've just heard that it does happen through the grapevine. Now, actually, I was watching my twins fight this week, and I decided that most fights are kind of like the self-checkout station at Hy-Vee. You think they're going to be quick and easy, and you're going to walk away with exactly what you wanted, but pretty soon you find yourself standing there confused and getting yelled at. Like you just wanted some chips and all of a sudden the machine's screaming, please place item in bagging area. It's in there already. Unexpected item in bagging area. Like, no, it's just my chips and my sanity melting away. Like fighting and self-checkout. It's not quite as simple as you hoped, but it's inevitable. Like it's part of being human in a sin-stained world. This week, I came across a Twitter account, or an X account, I guess, called At Florida Man, and it is just a long list of news articles about men in Florida being arrested for doing ridiculous things. Apparently, like, 2023 is quite a time to be alive as a man in Florida. And as I was scrolling through, it struck me how many of them were about, like, violent conflict between family members. There was stuff like, man arrested after throwing sausages at his mom, and Man attacks sister, bites cop because someone touched his cigar. You can't even make this stuff up. It's amazing. And as I was like thinking about it, I realized, you know what? It's natural that there's a lot of fights between family members. Those are the first people we learn to fight with. Our brothers and our sisters and our parents. And they still take the brunt of our anger and dissatisfaction because they're the people who are most proximate to us. But I think that conflict isn't just reserved for our immediate families. It happens in our church families as well. You guys may or may not be aware of this, but Christians and the church do not have the greatest reputation in our world for getting along and loving each other really well. And sadly, I think we earned that. Like from the very beginning, it's been a problem. In the first decade of the church, the Jewish Christians decided the Gentile Christians were doing it wrong and they got in a huge fight. You fast forward a few hundred years and the church literally split in half. 
West versus East, Catholic versus Orthodox. And they hated each other so much that if you fast forward another few hundred years, during this period of time where a bunch of Catholics from Europe were going to fight Muslims in Jerusalem and drive them out and retake the Holy Land in the name of Jesus, the Fourth Crusade never even made it to the Muslims. They got to Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, which was the seat of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and decided they were just going to kill the other Christians instead, which worked out great for the Muslims. I don't imagine they're like ready for war, and no one showed up to the battle, and they're like, all right, Phil, I guess they're uh, murdering each other. You want to grab a burger? I don't know if that's exactly how it went. I don't know if Phil was a popular Arab name in the 13th century. I don't even know if that's a thing we can know, but this is an ancient problem. The dirt of Europe is stained with the blood of Christians who killed other Christians. And the dirt of this country is too. If you read about the history of Christianity in the United States, you'll find people got in fights and started whole new states because they couldn't agree how to baptize. Like sprinkling, dunking, we're out of here. And people have been shot and stabbed over worship styles. And it's not just an ancient problem, it's a now problem. At least 2% of the churches that exist in the United States today are here because a church got in a big fight and decided to split into two. Like we have a history of being awful to one another. And the tragedy of that is the, the stakes couldn't be any higher. Jesus actually told us that the one thing, the single factor that would most pique the interest of a hurting, broken, suffering, lost, watching world is how well we love each other. So it matters that we figure out how to do relationships in a healthy way and, how we, and that we figure out how to do community in a healthy way because our ability to love one another well not only has a significant impact on our happiness, it has an impact on the happiness of everybody we crash into because when we get it wrong, we point them away from Jesus. I read a bunch of books not that long ago by this this group of guys known as the New Atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. And they're not just like atheists who don't believe in God. These guys were like really angry atheists. And I expected to find some challenging stuff while I read through it. It really challenged me to, to think. And what I found was some of the worst logic and weakest argumentation anywhere. And I'm biased, all right? I'm a pretty big Jesus fan. I'm kind of all in. I know what I believe. But in fairness, I've read a lot of the philosophy and theology that's been written by people all across the world over the last 3,000 years. And the new atheist stuff was some of the least compelling literature I've ever seen, with one exception. The pages of their books are filled with a disbelief and a seething rage at the hypocrisy of Christians. They cannot get over the way that people who claim the name of Jesus treat one another and the world around them. And as I read that stuff, it broke my heart. I was reminded of the words of the author Brennan Manning, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So it makes a difference that we do this thing right, that we live into the vision Jesus has for us of loving each other so well that a lonely, hurting world 
notices the love of God that lives in us and wants a little bit of it. And so this morning, we're talking about how to make that happen. We're talking about how to do healthy community despite the inevitability of conflict. If you've got a Bible with you, you can crack it open to the book of James chapter 4. It's, it's toward the back. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen or in the Revision app. If you need a Bible or your kids need one, they're back at the Next Steps table in the lobby. They're free. Please take one before you leave today. But in James 4, James is talking to this church that can't stop fighting. Everybody's kind of selfishly chasing their own thing and blaming everybody else around them, and they're quarreling, and James is like, stop it. Not only is this stealing our joy, it's turning the world off to Jesus. And this good news message that Jesus stepped out of eternity into the human story and gave his life so we could be forgiven and set free, even though we didn't deserve it, that ought to invade and permeate every bit of our souls in a way that leads us toward reconciliation and healing and unity and love. And when it's not doing that, something's wrong. And James is going to be a little bit harsh. He's going to cut deep here because he's not a dude that beats around the bush ever. And he wants to get to the root of the problem so we're not just treating symptoms. All right? This is what he writes in verse 1. What causes, and the Greek word here means source. He says, what is the source of fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? All right, this is a paradigm-shifting verse. Because if James didn't give us the answer right away, or even if I stopped reading after the first half of the verse and asked all of us to answer his rhetorical question, what causes fights and quarrels among you, every last one of us would start to answer by pointing fingers. There's something that's supposed to say, well, what made me frustrated this week, what caused fights and quarrels. He did, she said, that happened. We want to believe that other people or or other situations that happen to us are the source of everything going wrong in our lives. And if we got asked how to solve that problem, that answer would go hand in hand with the last one. Well, I'd be a whole lot happier if he, if she, if they And James knows that's how we want to answer the question. He also knows that it's the wrong answer. So he just cuts us off at the pass. He answers his own question immediately. He's like, what causes all the fights and the quarrels among you? Do they not come from your own desires that are at work within you? I mean, notice the stark contrast between the prepositions there, among you and within you. Your inclination is to blame your frustration and your unhappiness and your brokenness on the stuff that's going on among you, but actually it's all about what's going on within you. What James is trying to help us see here is that our problems with the people around us come from the brokenness within us. Like there's this selfishness that that lives in here and it's really difficult to kill. And so we have problems here because we're broken here. We fight and we quarrel here because something's empty in here. And there's a communal cost toward our bent to selfishness. James continues in verse two. He says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Like, here it is, in case you got to leave early this morning. James is saying, do you want to know why you're dissatisfied? Do you want to know why you're unhappy? Do you want to know why you're mad right now and you're tearing the people around you apart? You do not have what you want. 
There's something you desire, something you think you deserve, maybe even something that got promised to you, but your inability to wrap your hands around it has created a gnawing dissatisfaction inside of you and everyone around you will suffer until you get it. And notice he doesn't list what they're fighting about. He never lists off like, okay, and here's the things you've been quarreling about. Here are the the broken desires inside you because it doesn't matter. James is trying to help us see whatever the problem is that's causing you to treat one another in ways that look nothing like Jesus. It's not another people problem. It's an inside you problem. It's you trying to chase something that you don't have at the expense of the people around you. Because there's this temptation that exists in every single one of us, part of our sinful nature, to build ourselves up at the expense of the people that surround us, even if they're loved ones, even if they're family members. This is why we have a tendency to be story toppers, right? Like, let's be real. Over the course of the next month, 90% of us in this room, at some point, are going to have this conversation. Someone's going to come up to us and say, I'm in first place in my fantasy league right now. Christian McCaffrey's giving me like 28 points a week. And for almost all of us, when we hear that, our first instinct is going to be to say, oh, I do not care. Oh, I so do not care. I care about you as a person, but I barely care about my fantasy team. I do not care about your fantasy team at all. And we're not going to say that because it's rude and mean, but also because as soon as they brag, our pride gets poked. So what we're going to say instead is, I won my fantasy league two years ago and five years ago, two-time fantasy football league winner, made a hundred bucks both times, but it's cool that you're in first place because we just want to win. We're chasing our glory. We live in a world that tells us we should chase our glory. The greatest aim of humanity, the greatest purpose of our lives is to do whatever we think will make us happy right now, no matter what that costs and who that costs. And James says, you guys, when you do that, you're creating space for people to get hurt. And you're willing to, to kill, to do that. You're, you're killing people. And he's not using kill literally here when he says you don't have, so you kill. He's using it metaphorically to say, when you want something you don't have, you will do anything to get it. That's what the word covet means. There are a couple different words we translate covet in the New Testament. And the common one that shows up all over the place kind of means like to have some secret desire inside you that no one else knows about. So you look over and you're like, oh, I want that. But there's this other word that shows up just a few times. It's zelao, and it means boiling jealousy. That's the word James uses here. He says, you are so hotly pursuing this thing. You want it bad enough that you'll crush anything and anybody who gets in your way. And I don't think any of us in this room can pretend that we haven't done it. Just think about the last time you weren't getting your way. Think about the way you treated your husband, the way you treated your wife, your parents, your kids, your friends, your boss, your coworkers. Like think about the bodies lining the road behind you because you had to run them over to drive your life where you wanted it to go. We've all been guilty of doing that, and there's a cost when we do. James tells us, like, you don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, 
you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. I think this is super interesting to me. He kicks things off by saying part of the reason that you're empty, part of the reason you don't have everything you want is you haven't even asked God to fill you. You've been so focused on winning that you forgot to trust. So start from a place of believing God will give you everything you need. But then James jumps off of that and says, also though some of you have prayed, but what you're praying for is weird. And how is it weird? You're asking the God of the universe, hey, could you help me chase my own glory in a self-centered way? that allows me to trample the people around me so I can have everything I want? Could you assist with that? And that's a weird thing to ask God. And so James is like, hey, part of the reason God isn't answering your prayers is you're praying really selfish, messed up prayers. But this is a something that we all do. It's a we thing. I'm right in that boat with you. I have this thing inside me called self. And I keep wanting to believe, like if I could just feed it enough, then it'll finally be satisfied. But that's not what happens. Every time I feed it, my appetite just grows. It's the same thing with like, food, right? You never eat a meal and you're like, mm, that was delicious. I shall probably never eat again. Or sometimes if you eat Italian and it's sitting heavy, but you don't mean it. You're just kidding. You're full for a little bit and then you're hungry again. That's the exact same thing that happens when we're chasing more of the world. And James realizes that and then he has some difficult hard to hear words for all of us. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? This is a big accusation. James just called all of us adulterers. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, God says, your maker is like your husband. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. In Jeremiah, God says, like a wife unfaithful to her husband, so you have been to me. And the imagery there, the picture that's being painted is there's a covenant. There's a promise that has been made. But when we chase our own selfishness at the expense of God and his people, we break that promise. We trample on the covenant and we cause pain and hurt to everyone around us. And it's not hard to wrap our minds around why. If you're claiming the name of Jesus and you're chasing your glory and your reputation and your fame and your money and your success, like if your relationship status on social media says in a relationship with Jesus, but you're dating all that stuff on the side and asking God to help you get it, that's messed up. And what James wants us to understand here is that selfishness isn't apathy toward God. It's animosity toward God. Like, we tend to think sometimes that if, if we just kind of ignore God, we're just pushing him off to the side. We're like, I don't, I don't really care. I'm going to do my own thing. But James is saying, you have a creator, a maker who made you for a relationship with him and with his people, and he loves you. And when you run in the other direction, you're not just ignoring him. You are actively telling him, you are not enough. I want something different and something more than you, and I only want you for what you can get me. And James continues then talk, and he says, look, don't, don't you understand God is jealous for you? For you, not of you. Like, God's jealousy is not a petty thing. It's not like an insecure girlfriend who's checking up on what you're doing all the time because she wants to know. It's, it's like a wife who says, I don't think you should date other women. It's not a tough request, right? 
It's, it's a love thing, God's jealousy. There's not a dude in here who'd be like, honey, don't you think you're taking that a little too far? Let's talk about it again once you simmer down. Like, no, that's what marriage is. There's, there's this connection there. When you chase selfishness, you're actively rejecting the love of God and you're causing pain, not just to God, but to the people around you because you were built, you were created, you were designed for something more than a self-centered life. But we all do it. We decide the world has something to offer that God doesn't, and then we do damage to people. Because here's how it goes. We find something we want. We, we chase that thing we want. Then we decide other people might be able to help us get it, and we use the people around us to help us get the things that we want. And we see it in marriage, like all, all the time. You're like, oh, okay, now that I'm married, you, you owe me my happiness, like you promised, you, you stood at the altar and said this, so, so you owe me everything that I want. Help me get this, help me get that. And if people aren't giving us the things that we want and the things we expect from them, we just, we squeeze it out of them. We just squeeze them, like give me this, offer me that, keep this list of expectations. And the thing is, it doesn't work out a whole lot better for human beings than it did for the dinner roll that Tommy was squeezing right there. We got to stop doing this to people because what we do is like we, we squeeze them until we're happy. And they're broken, but we're happy for a little bit because we got what we wanted until we're empty again and we squeeze them again. It's a messed up way to do relationships and to go through the world. And there probably is someone in your life, for, for all of us, you can think of right now, who feels squeezed because you've put your happiness on their shoulders. And maybe even subconsciously, you get mad at them and resentful of them whenever your life isn't going exactly the way you wanted it to go. You guys, there's no getting around this. Happiness doesn't happen by chasing our own happiness at the expense of the people around us. When you look inward and decide my selfish desires are what matter most, then when you use God and other people to get them and you rob yourself of joy, purpose, community, and love. And so we gotta get to this point where we look at God and say, I'm sorry for trying to use you for my glory. And we look at other people and say, hey, my, my problem with you really has to do with something that's broken inside me. And you know what happens when we do that? James tells us, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because I have gotten this wrong so many times that I just feel like God should probably be done with me, and so should everyone else in my life. But James looks at us and says, hey, yeah, you're adulterers. Yeah, you're, you're jerks to the people around you. Yes, you're enemies of God, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He gives more grace. Humble yourselves and you'll be lifted up. I, thank God for that. Like, thank God my failure. And the pain I've caused chasing my glory and trying to squeeze happiness out of other people isn't a dead end. Thank God that all the times I have sacrificed my long-term happiness by running after what I thought would make me happy in the short term isn't the end of my story. Like, this is something I struggle with. And so I'm so grateful for grace. And I, I can confess it and be honest with you because I think it's, it's real and, and it's human. It's human. 
And particularly for me, I think people who speak in public regularly give off this impression that they're like epically self-confident. You're like, oh man, you must really believe in yourself to stand on a stage. But preaching, at least for me and for everyone else I know who does this all the time, is an activity and a platform that breeds insecurity in the human soul. It's just difficult to share your life stories and your struggles and lay your passion on the line every week and not have these questions that pop up in the back of your mind. You don't want them to, but sometimes they're, they're just there at the end of a Sunday. Did it work? Was it good? Was it good enough? Did everything I put into it, did it, did it matter? Did I make any difference in the world at all? Did they like it? Did they like me? And it's like messed up and, and broken. But here's the darkness in my soul. Sometimes I'm sitting at my desk in a week and I'm praying that God will give me the right illustration so it clicks. That'll help me come up with, with words and string them together in a way that's sensical and powerful and hopefully even transformational. And then I do a gut check and I realize, oh man, I'm not praying this right now because I'm terrified that God might not be glorified. Like right now in my heart, I'm praying this because I want what I say to be awesome so that I get good feedback so I can squeeze a little bit of my self-worth out of all of you. Like that's really gross. I, just, I confess it and I'm sorry because it's not what I want to be about. But I've learned, because it's happened enough times, to not immediately run to the mirror and let loose and beat myself up, but instead to come to God and say, God, this is alive in me. Would you please kill off this temptation? Would you help me turn from that towards you? Would I be small so you can be big? Please help me live out this call to preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Like, I just want to be all about you all the time because I know that it's chasing you, that it's surrendering everything to you that allows me to find the peace and the hope and the meaning and the life and the love and the community that I was built for. Here's the reason I pray that. I think James makes it abundantly clear here that death to self is the only way to truly live. That dying to our own glory is the only way we're ever going to step into the glorious future God has for us. Because there's grace on the other side of our selfishness, but he gives more grace. And if we'll come to him in repentance, he'll bring the healing and the happiness. He'll bring us a depth of purpose and joy and love that we never could have achieved on our own. And we'll find ourselves deeply, meaningfully connected, not just to his people, but to his mission. He invites us to be a part of what he's doing to set all things right and make all things new. When James uses that imagery of like washing our hands and purifying our hearts, that's priestly imagery. It's what the priests in the Old Testament would do before they engaged God's mission in the temple. And what we know from the New Testament is that all of us, every last one of us in Christ, are priests. We're a royal priesthood. And so James is saying, get rid of all that external stuff. Get rid of all the stuff that's keeping you from God and come before him humbly. Allow him to connect you to himself and his people and he will invite you to be a part of his mission and give you a purpose like you've never known before. And it's beautiful, but it's a hard thing to do because I had all this me inside of me and all of us do. But our dissatisfaction, our frustration, our anger, our unhappiness, our problems with the people around us come from the brokenness within us. Like we're chasing selfish aims and we're destroying people and running away from God in the process. But God has grace for us on the other side of that. And he's got community for us on the other side of it as well. On the other side of dying to ourselves so we can bless the people around us and be a part of what God's doing 
to create a better future for our world. James actually kind of finishes this passage by giving us a vision for that, by talking about what it looks like to be a community that loves well rather than fights well. This is what he writes. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? He's saying, look, Jesus told us the world would know us by his love, and it's his image that takes a beating when we get this wrong. The world is going to see the way we treat each other, and if and when we do it right, the world will sit up and take notice because we have the kind of love it's desperately longing for. And so we got to be intentional, you guys. The church is meant to be defined by the love we share. It's meant to be defined by the love we share. And we do that by setting down our selfishness and setting down our own glory and stepping into community. Like the practical application this morning is really simple. If you want to stop being a person who's chasing your own glory and your own desires at the expense of everyone around you, that's doing damage to people that you love because you can't get over the me that lives inside of you, then plug into community. Find some people to give your life to who will walk with you, who will love you, who will challenge you, and who will hold you accountable. Because that's the way we move from this internally focused thing to this externally focused thing and experience the happiness, the joy, and the purpose God created us for. And so I have a twofold challenge for you this morning. Number one, go all in at this community we call Revision. If you've been partially in, find a place to serve, start giving, plug in, and see what God does. Like, go all in. Give your life away to the people in this room and see if happiness doesn't begin to happen in your life in ways that it has not been happening. And my second challenge is an even deeper step than the first. Like, go all in and join a house group. One of our core values at Revision Church is that loved people do life with people. In Christ, we're loved, and we're built to do life and faith together. And I think if you want to experience the fullness of what James is talking about, the fullness of what God has promised you in a way that allows you to escape the crushing prison of selfishness, then you're going to have to find a group of people to do life and faith with who know you and who are known by you. And there's vulnerability in that. There's a scary level of vulnerability in that. And there's an inevitability of conflict in that. But when you know and you are known, when you're walking alongside people who will love you and pray for you and encourage you and challenge you and help you grow, you begin to experience the kind of joy that Jesus was talking about when he said the world will know us by their love. Because I think if we don't do this, if we don't get this right, my fear is that we're just going to become yet another footnote in the sad history of people who claimed the name of Jesus and treated people like they didn't know him. But if we get it right, 
Like if this is the thing that defines this church, this community, if revision is a church that's known for its love, we set aside ourselves, we surrender to God, and we give our lives away to each other, I believe the world will take notice and we will have the opportunity to write a better future. Not just for us, but for the people around us as well as they experience the love of God that lives inside of us. Will you pray with me? Well, thank you. Thank you for the gift of each other even though sometimes each other does not feel like a gift. Even though community is difficult and it's vulnerable and it's hard sometimes, even though it's frustrating to try to do relationships well, thank you for the opportunity to be a part, not just of of a story you're writing for us individually, but a story you're writing for us as a people. Lord, I pray for this community, that we would be known by our love, that we'd all be able to set aside all that selfishness and that the gross, like building ourselves up at the expense of others that lives inside of us and love one another in a way that not only writes a better story in our lives, but creates space for the people around us in this city to see who you are and how you love. Lord, thank you for calling us to community and to love and to mission. We pray that you bless us in that endeavor. In Jesus' name. Amen.